I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning as we continue. Hebrews chapter 12. And this is the last sermon in this brief series that I'm preaching this morning on biblical worship. And I want to finish this morning a topic that's really never finished, but for this morning, uh, we are going to move on to other things after today. Uh, I want to finish by looking at what the Bible says regarding the way we worship, how we worship. And we find a key text, I think, in Hebrews 12, verses 28 through 29. And it says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If you're not familiar with the theology of Hebrews 12, I'll make that a little clearer later on. Uh, But we have just a brief moment to touch on it this morning. But what we're interested in really is the second part of these two verses. And thus, because of what God has done, thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I don't know if you have ever been in a discussion with someone about the right or the wrong way to worship God. I imagine some of you have had that discussion. Maybe discussion isn't the word. Maybe I should say you've had an argument or a debate, maybe even a fight. Uh, One of my professors years ago confessed theology is a contact sport. But I say this because when you start talking about the right or wrong way to do what we do when we come into the worship service, people can get very worked up about this. Have you ever heard of the term worship wars? I think most of you have. Well, since we're talking about worship, I might as well start by saying something contradictory just to make you feel comfortable. Let me tell you why the worship wars never really existed in the first place. You ready for this? Two reasons. First, when people talk about worship wars, they aren't really talking about disagreements regarding worship. They are talking about disagreements regarding music, specifically the style of music that is used in worship services. And significant tension between churches and even within congregations about that question has been noticeable for a long time in the church. In fact, 25 years ago, I read a book in which leaders in gospel-preaching churches were writing a chapter each on what the points of tension would be as we moved into the 21st century in the church. And one of those tension points was raised by a music pastor named Leonard Payton, who wrote a chapter called, How Shall We Sing to God? And in his opening, he said, we are defined by our music. We fight over it in the church. We change congregations because of worship music style with little concern for the theology of the new or the old congregation. Whole denominations, he says, are embroiled in debate over worship music style with no clear outcome in sight. Some church musicians, he says, sense that we are in a runaway train headed straight for a broken bridge. But the problem is music and singing, though they are an important aspect of worship, are only a part of worship. Do you ever hear about huge debates over the call to worship or the benediction? Do people bristle and take sides when you bring up the the subject of public reading of Scripture or the proclamation of the Word of God or prayer? Of course not. 
it's not worship wars, it's really music wars. But there's another reason why these infamous worship wars were never truly waged. In order to conduct a war, you have to know how to fight. You have to know how to wield the instruments of war and employ the tactics of war. How to engage the opposition, testing their strengths and weaknesses. And you have to know what it takes to declare victory or what you must do to surrender your position. By the same token, if we're going to have a war of ideas, we have to know how to engage in that war. But in order to have profitable, polemical engagement on worship, a true worship war, not only do we have to have a deep and broad understanding of what the Bible says on the subject, but we also have to be able to discuss things like aesthetics, the relation of beauty to truth, how to evaluate meaning of forms and styles. And in American culture, it's just, it's just a fact. We are generations removed from the time when those subjects were commonly taught in schools. We're not stupid, but as we're growing up in our education system, we commonly don't receive much instruction in the way of rhetoric and philosophy and logic and the history of ideas. So we find it even kind of difficult to engage articulately in conversations about forms, and that would include worship forms. And this shift in our educational system is directly related to the rising interest in developing technology. This is sort of an aside, but it's something we ought to be aware of. We wanted to lead the world in computer development and military might and the space race. So we began to marginalize the study of history and ideas and philosophy in our schools to make more room for math and science. So in short, we decided it was more important to teach our children to answer the question, can we, rather than the question, should we? And now we look at our country, we're technological geniuses, we're leaders in the world, but we're morally bankrupt as a country. The thought leaders of our nation wear smart watches on their wrists while celebrating the notion that gender identity is a personal choice, not something we're born with. And if you contradict the narrative with tenable moral arguments, you get shouted down and canceled, not merely because you disagree, but because most people, not all people by far, but, but most people, I would say, do not or do not want to have an argument of ideas on that level. We don't do well discussing concepts that we can't see or hear or touch or taste, so we end up simply shouting at each other. Now, some of you might be tempted to think, well, why do we need to know stuff about ideas and logic and aesthetics? Can't we just read the Bible and do what it says? Yes, but think about it for a second. When you're evaluating a cultural practice, no matter what it is, it's not simply a matter of knowing what the Bible says. It's also a matter of interpreting the biblical, con uh, biblical text in its context and making real-world application to the thing that we're studying in the culture. If you're going to make an application from the Bible to a cultural practice, you have to understand the Bible and you have to understand the thing that you're studying about. And you have to know both well enough to be able to draw the appropriate inferences from the Bible to that thing. And to summarize, what I'm saying is simply that we don't truly have worship wars because we rarely ever take the time to engage head-to-head -head in careful philosophical thinking anymore. It's just not the way most of us roll. Most of the time when you hear people talking about the subject, we notice that they're talking past one another 
or they think uh, of a good reason to support their own arguments. And you know how this goes. You're not really listening to the person talking. You're just thinking about what you're going to say next. That's the kind of thing that we've had. And this has gone on long enough where most of us have simply thrown up our hands and said, you know, it's not worth fighting over. Let's just move on. I'll just do what I want to do. And, and it doesn't matter. I'm not going to make trouble for anybody who wants to take a different decision, make a different decision, and we'll all be okay. That's kind of the way everybody goes with it now. And you know what? I could live with that. Uh, I, I hate controversy. I have this kind of personality that wants everything to be okay, you know, and I want everybody to get along. And if, if truth is being compromised, we got to deal with it. If there's tension, if there's lack of unity, we've got to take care of that. But other than that, you know what? Let's, just, let's let things go. Don't sweat the small stuff. That's the way my personality is. And I would love to just say, let's not talk about it at all. But there's one problem. The problem is this annoying scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, which says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The translation of the Greek here is a little misleading, but in the original Greek language, the word acceptable that you see there is not really, it's not really an adjective as it as appears in our ESV. It's, it's an adverb. It literally reads, let us worship God well-pleasingly with reverence and awe. Do you know how an adverb functions in a sentence? Of course you do. An adverb tells you how the action is to be performed. In other words, God wants us to worship him in a way that is well-pleasing to him. And if there is a way of worship that is well-pleasing to God, if you just think about that logically, there has to be a way of worship that is not pleasing to God. And he's asking us to make a decision to be discerning. And that means that the Bible is telling us how we worship God matters to God. And if, if something matters to God, I mean, no matter what it is, then we shouldn't rest in our souls about the matter until we know that God is pleased with the decisions we are making about that. Now, we've been talking about worship with the following definition in mind. Christian worship is that response that comes from the heart when we encounter the living and true God. When we truly realize who he is and what he has done. And we naturally step back in wonder and we say, wow. I mean, it's natural. It's a natural response when we're moved by something so magnificent, something far beyond our own power and understanding and experience. Worship is not so much an action as it is a reaction. Worship is something that overflows from within us. But last week I went a step further. If it's true that worship is the response that comes from our heart when we encounter the living and true God, then there are at least two essential observations we have to make about this. The first is authentic Christian worship depends upon our knowledge of the true and living God. I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? Because if, if I'm worshiping only when I'm moved by the knowledge of God, I have to have a knowledge of God. In fact, if our knowledge of God is unremarkable, so will be our worship. Our ability to worship deeply comes from a corresponding depth of our understanding of God and uh, the, the understanding of how we're just to respond to him. So we must properly understand who God is. But secondly, as we saw last week, we have to understand what God is like. That's so important because God is depicted in scripture in many ways. 
to show us not just the concepts, not just the creedal statements, but what God is like, what we imagine him to be. He is a loving, good shepherd. He is a caring father. He's a powerful storm. We saw in our, inter, in, in our call to worship this morning, these, these images of God, the Lord is our rock. He's our fortress. He's our deliverer. Our God, in who, the one in whom we can take refuge, our shield, the horn of our salvation, our stronghold. And when we worship God, we are not responding only to doctrinal precepts about God. We are responding to a proper image of what God is like. And both of these are derived from the text of Scripture. But there's a second essential observation that I'd like to wrap this series up with this morning that logically flows from this definition. If worship is our response to the living and true God, not only must there be a correlation between our knowledge of that God and our response to God, but our response needs to be appropriate for its object. In other words, worship of the living and true God should be worthy of God. Do you see what I mean? If worship is truly a response, then there ought to be a co-respondence, a correspondence between how I respond and what I'm responding to, between how I worship God and the God that I'm worshiping, a worship worthy of God. The word worship in Scripture doesn't mean that like, we're good enough to worship God. That's not the idea of worthy in Scripture. It has to do with bringing up the other side of a scale, making things equal, making them balanced, living up to something. It's the word used in Colossians 1.10 where Paul encourages the believers to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, if, if we belong to the Lord, we walk in a manner consistent with belonging to the Lord. And he says, fully pleasing to him. In other words, to live in a manner consistent with being called by the Lord's nature, consistent with belonging to him. That's what it means to be worthy of him. And when it says well-pleasing here in Colossians 1.10, that's the same word we find in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, that the ESV labels acceptable, well-pleasing. So we're saying that of all things... Our worship, our response to God should be a well-pleasing response, worthy of his majesty and greatness, a response that measures up to, that is equal to, that is appropriate to express our awe and our amazement. And we have to be convinced about this. If we're going to worship God in a way that is worthy of him, we have to be convinced that learning to worship God in the best way we can is something that pleases him. We can't be satisfied with giving worship to God the way we used to give gifts to our parents when we were little children. Do you you remember that or understand what I'm talking about there? In the weeks leading up to Christmas in our country grade school, if I think back all the way to like when I was seven or eight or nine years old, they would give us opportunities in our classes to make little crafts for mom and dad that we would crudely wrap with paper and uh, stick under the tree uh, when they were looking, something with our name or picture on it or our hand prints, that was always a big thing. Uh, one year, I remember our teacher made silhouettes of us, which was kind of cool. And uh, sometimes we'd use yarn and popsicle sticks and styrofoam cups, maybe a finger painting. There's a work of art. Uh, and, and we would wrap that. And, you know, we would be so eager for our parents to open those little gifts 
We thought it was the biggest thing in the world and our parents would make a big deal about it and be so thankful and touched. But you know what I mean? Uh, children will often... Oh, I'm sorry. That, I don't know how that got in there. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's our grandchild that was born on Friday, by the way. And uh, I, must have, I must have accidentally combined PowerPoints. I don't know how that happened. But uh, her name is Charlie Lane. And uh, she is a girl. Don't judge. I'm not the parent. And, uh, but uh, she's a beautiful little baby. But anyway, uh, what I was trying to show you is, yeah, these gifts. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> These gifts that we make for our parents, and they're just, you know, they're not, they're, they're special because they come from, from the parents. And, 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 and we, we look at the children, and we know they're not mature enough, and they haven't had the experience enough to, to fully appreciate depth of expression. Our own children took a while to catch on to the whole gift-making idea, I have to say. Instead of making gifts, they would find gifts around the house and then wrap them in bathroom tissue and place them under the tree. So leading up to Christmas, Rena and I would notice random objects that suddenly went missing from the house. A pen, a hairbrush, bar of soap. I would say to Rena, where's the toothpaste? And she would say, look under the tree. And uh, there it was. And then one year when uh, she was about four or five, one of my daughters actually picked out a gift for me from the store, and she was so excited she wrapped it all by herself. And she put it under the tree it was so precious. She told my, uh, my wife, don't tell daddy what it is. And she said, do you think he'll find out? Do you think he'll figure it out? And Rena said, I don't know. But like our parents before us, we were moved by our children's uninformed but sincere expressions of love. I mean, for the parents, it's not about the gift. It's about who's giving the gift. So we responded like all parents do by being sentimental. But when it comes to the matter of Christian worship, it is not about the one who gives the gift. It is about the one who receives the gift. He is all the glory. The one who created us to worship him, the one whom Hebrews 12, 29 reminds us is a consuming fire. God loves us. When we come to him through faith in his son Jesus and are saved, we become his children. And he delights in his children. In fact, how it must move the heart of God, I think. I was thinking about this so much this weekend. How it must move the heart of God when a little child or maybe an older person who has never known the Lord who first comes to faith in Christ with no training or experience in how to approach God reaches up to the Heavenly Father with the simplest prayer or maybe with the most menial act of devotion. That must gladden the heart of God. But God is not sentimental. He has given all believers his word and the Holy Spirit that they might deepen in their understanding of him and their obedience to him and thereby, thereby deepen their worship of him. I mean, it's one thing for parents to rejoice in the simple gifts of their little children, but if your teenage children are still constructing crude gifts and wrapping them in bathroom tissue, then you probably should be alarmed about that. Because growing up, part of it is realizing that a gift should be worthy of the person receiving it. So what we find in the scripture is that God himself instructs people how to worship. Do you remember how God responded when the first children in the Bible brought their worship before God? Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Both bring an offering before the Lord as an act of worship. 
And the text says, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Abel worshiped well. Cain did not worship well. God himself makes this distinction between two acts of worship, declaring one worthy and the other unworthy. And we can trace this theme throughout the scripture. We can trace it to Exodus 32, where Moses is on the top of the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle and the correct form of worship while the the children of Israel at the bottom of the mountain, remember? Practicing false worship. This is the reason Moses' anger burns against the people, and this is why he smashes the Ten Commandments. It was their false worship. We can trace God's distinction between worthy and unworthy worship through the rise and fall of Israel in the Old Testament. Israel flourishes or fails based on how she is worshiping the true and living God. And when we come to the New Testament, we find that the church is instructed to worship the Lord in a worthy manner. In Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, we're instructed to sing in a particular way. In 1 Timothy 2 and and 4, there are specific instruction Paul gives for the liturgy. What, what, what they do when they, when they meet together in the Ephesian church. And in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is gravely concerned about the church's worship when they come together. In fact, you know the Lord's table passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that we read every time we gather around the Lord's table. Most of you know that the reason that passage is in Paul's letter in the first place is because Paul is trying to correct the wrong way that they were worshiping when they came around the table. Remember his words in chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats, of, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. He's correcting their worship. And he does the same in 1 Corinthians 14. He corrects how they're worshiping when they assemble together. He, he speaks of prayer. He speaks of the proclamation of the word. He speaks even of the pronouncement of the amen in 1 Corinthians 14. So how do we bring to God a worship that is worthy of him? Well, there are so many different ways we could answer that question this morning, but I want to be very practical and really just draw these thoughts to a close by centering our thoughts on this single text this morning, Hebrews 12, verses 28 through 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, thus what? Because of the gratitude of receiving this kingdom... Let us offer to God acceptable worship or let us offer God well, uh, worship well-pleasingly with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now, literally, the entire letter of Hebrews, the author is telling his readers not to worship in one way, but to worship another. If you haven't realized before that, if you look at the New Testament and you ask yourself, what is the one book that addresses worship more than any other book? The answer to that question is the letter that the author of Hebrews, maybe it's Paul, we're not 100% sure, the authorship is never claimed in Hebrews, but it's that letter written to God's people. It is about worship. In fact, for example, when he says back in Hebrews 4.16, these, these familiar words, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, right? That we may find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Uh, he's referring to worship. The verb draw near is used so many times in, in, in Hebrews. And it, it's a verb of worship coming near as if we're worshiping the Lord. 
and he uses that of the priests, and he uses that of the Christians. And throughout the letter, he is speaking to believers who are facing persecution. Many of them were Jews who were saved by embracing Jesus as their Messiah, and they trusted in the Messiah for their salvation. But because of the threat of persecution, they were tempted to revert back to Judaism and avoid the suffering and begin to worship God the way they used to before he sent his son to die for us, bringing their own sacrifices, going through the the temple liturgy day after day, week after week. And the writer's warning to them is, Jesus Christ is your only hope. You better hold fast that confession and never let go. That's what he's saying to them in Hebrews. This is the one you ought to worship. But the coming of Jesus Christ transformed biblical worship. And in Hebrews chapter 12, this is the climax of the entire book. Earlier in the chapter, he recalls how the Israelites worshiped God at Mount Sinai in the wilderness quaking with fear lest God destroy them for their sin. If you read a little bit earlier in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, uh, the writer reminds them that the Old Testament saints cried to Moses, don't let God speak to us directly or we're going to die. Have him speak to you and you tell us what he said. They were were fearful of God that you couldn't even want, you couldn't touch the mountain or even have one of your animals wander up there. Anything living would be killed if they touched that mountain. And he's comparing this worship ceremony that they had of sorts at Mount Sinai where God loved them and he was saving them and he was holding them at arm's length. He's comparing that to worship after Jesus Christ opened the door for us to go right into the presence of God. He contrasts that with the worship we enjoy now, which he says in chapter 12 is on Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem the new kingdom that cannot be shaken, the place where God actually dwells. And Jesus, our great high priest, has taken us there to God's very throne by entering that heavenly place, not with the sacrificial blood of animals that the priest would offer day after day after day, but with his own blood shed for us. So when we come together to worship, we are telling the story of that access that we have through Christ. We are entering, as it were, before God's throne on the merits of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this moves us to wonder, it ought to, and gratitude and awe. But this worship is worthy of God only when it, in our response, it measures up to the profound sacrifice that Christ has made to bring us into the very throne room of God. So what is an appropriate response? What is acceptable worship? Well, there's some clues right here in this text. First, I want you to look at the phrase, let us be grateful for receiving this unshaken kingdom that is this access into the heavenly realm through Christ. And thus, notice, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Worthy worship, therefore, is grateful worship. In the original language, this term being grateful is an expression that communicates joyful thanksgiving. One of the ways we please God with our worship is by worshiping him with joy that overflows from gratitude. In fact, in the next chapter, Hebrews 13, 15, the writer encourages us to worship God with sacrifices of praise. Even in the Old Testament, God's people were encouraged to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. You're familiar with those words? Psalm 100. 
uh, come into his presence with singing. Worship him with gladness. So our worship ought to be infused with joy because we are thankful. But what kind of joy? What joy is appropriate for God? Any old joy will do? You say, well, you mean there are different kinds of joy? Of course there are different kinds of joy. But that doesn't occur to us most of the time because, as I said earlier, we're not used to thinking about things like this. We're not brought up to it anymore. When we think of responses, we think in terms of amount. How much joy do you have? How much uh, uh, love do you have for God? How hard are you worshiping God? We think in terms of amount. We don't necessarily think in terms of quality. There is a kind of joy you feel when your team scores a goal and takes the lead. If there's a couple of Clemson fans in here this morning, you probably know what that's like after last night's game. Is it the kind of joy we should feel? Is is that the kind of joy that we should feel, though, for the God who sent his son? Is, Is that the same kind of joy? Yay, God. Is it the kind of joy we feel when we fall in love? Or maybe the joy of having a new car or whatever it is for you? Or the kind of joy that people have at a party? And what expression of joy gladdens the heart of God? What joy is worthy of God? And you can't put it into so many words, but whatever it is, it should be the kind of response that expresses this deep and profound gratitude for an eternal gift that saved you from eternal punishment and brought you into the very arms of the Savior forever. That's the kind of joy it is. But there is another expression in the text that tempers or informs this joy. He also says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We might not be able to put grateful joy into words, but whatever grateful joy is, whatever grateful joy is appropriate for the worship of God, it has to go hand in hand with reverence and awe and make sense. The Greek word translated reverence is defined as holy caution. Holy caution. One of the lexicons says, It's the expression you would use if you were carrying a priceless vase across a concrete floor, showing great respect and care. And the word awe is godly fear. And these ideas explain to us what appropriate worship is all about, what a worthy response to God is all about. It is a deep and abiding joy on the one hand, and profound reverence and respect on the other. I like to think of a proper response to God as one of reverent joy. That's just what plays in my mind. You could say joyful reverence if you want, but the idea is that these two responses of of grateful joy and reverent awe are held in tension with one another. Properly informed joy and properly informed reverence. This has implications for both our public worship and our personal walk with God. When we construct a worship service here at Gateway, we're aiming for various elements of worship and musical forms that allow the worshiper to respond to God with reverent joy. Do we succeed all the time? Of course not. We're just a family coming together to try to worship our God. And we do it the best we can. But that's our goal. To choose appropriate elements and musical forms and to strike a tone that celebrates what God has done for us through Christ, but with due reverence to our God 
the consuming fire. I always tell people we don't take ourselves seriously here, but we take God seriously. For example, there's a lot of music that we could use in our services that one could argue is joyful, but maybe it's missing the appropriate awe and fear. And perhaps it's too casual or flippant or lightweight or trite. So we just choose not to use that. On the other hand, there's Christian music that is arguably reverent but lacking in joy. And I don't mean that all of our songs have to make us happy. There is a a joy that's serious, a joy that's deep. But we want to see these two extremes. I shouldn't say they're extremes. I should say these, these two qualities come together in our worship, at least these two qualities. Now, it's one thing to offer a congregation musical forms that express reverent joy, but it's another thing to sing them with reverent joy. And that's where we as the worshiper enter into the equation. We respond to God's truth with singing. But when we do, is our response reverent? Is it joyful? Because the verse tells us, be joyfully grateful and have reverent awe. And we can have those kinds of attitudes when we worship. We can engage with our minds and hearts and come together and express this to God. But as I said, worship is more than music. What about our attitude when we begin to worship together? Do we prepare to worship? Do we just, like, everything else is going in our lives and we park the car in the, in the parking lot? At least, praise the Lord, we have a parking lot, right? Uh, we park uh, big enough for everybody to fit, and we park it there and come in, all of a sudden we're, we're, we're sort of doing the, the church thing? Or maybe when we enter into this room uh, to, to worship, does, does our worship begin there? Or are we preparing ourselves? Do we come with joyful reverence expectantly, when we pray, and I'm talking about praying in the, in the public assembly, do our, do our minds wander? Or are we really expressing gratitude to God with awe? Is it merely tradition? Are we engaging? Are we praying in thankfulness and gratitude and reverence? When we read the text of Scripture or when we hear it read, are we serious about what God says to us? Are, are we, as, as one pastor said, leaning into the text? I want to know what he says. I want to know what this means, not only because it is meaningful for us, but simply because it's the truth. And truth is beautiful because God created truth. Because remember, worship begins in the heart. We can receive a divine order of worship from heaven itself. I would love to have one of those, to be honest with you. I could show everybody, look, I've got a, I've got a liturgy from God, okay? And now, no argument now, okay? This is, this is what he wants. It would be great to have that. A liturgy from heaven detailing exactly what we're supposed to do in our worship service. But if we as worshipers are not coming before God, listening, responding with due reverence and praise, then we are still not worshiping God in a way that is worthy of him, even if we have the perfect liturgy. But we always go one step beyond this truth because Paul says, remember that our whole life is to be an act of worship to God, that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. We've talked about this a couple of different times. That means that there is a sense in which we are to live out joyful reverence in everything we do. Our lives, the, the, the vibe of our lives as believers ought to be starkly different than somebody who does not know Jesus Christ. We think of it in terms of what you do and what you don't do and what you listen to and that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's got to be bigger than that. It, it starts with something much more profound, and that is, are we living our lives every day and making choices 
based on the fact that we have a God who has saved us through his son and we are here to give our very lives in worship to him with joyful reverence. So rather than trying to live merely by some tradition or thinking that God doesn't really care what I do, we should live our lives in joyful reverence in worship of God every day. There are things that I'm just going to not do in my life because I'm a worshiper of God. And there are places I'm just not going to go or places I am going to go or certain things I'm just not going to let my mind think about or certain things I'm not going to joke about or I'm going to guard what I watch or listen to during my life, not because of some list that somebody handed to me, but because I really want to live my life pleasingly to God as an act of worship to him so that when we rub shoulders with people in our community, we are ready to share with them the greatest news in all the world and, and show our lives as living out that, the implications of that gospel so that when we gather on the Lord's day, we are really doing something not for the first time during the week. We're ready to join together publicly to do what we've been practicing privately in our lives all week long. And I think that we as a congregation should pray for God's grace that we might know him truly, not just the creeds about him, although those are so important, but know what God is like and that we respond to him in faith and love and worship and that our worship would be worthy of this great God whom we claim to worship. Father, I...